This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player, this is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast. It is podcast number 34. And we're doing it on Tuesday, December 20th. And we have a lot of things to talk about because some news broke today about the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers, the great people at Bet Rivers. Don't forget to download the Bet Rivers app. It is easy, it's convenient. Make all your bets as we come down the home stretch of the NFL season. But you can bet any sport, you can play any casino game a little later in this podcast. We're going to talk to Chris Terrian, former Flyer defenseman, long tenure. Philadelphia athlete who's written a great book about his redemption story in life. It's called Criterion Road to Redemption. And of course, Chris uh, will talk about his battles with alcoholism and uh, the triumph over it and talk some Flyers hockey uh, in, in an era where, you know, we, we enjoyed Flyer hockey, especially the Eric Lindros era. And Chris will have a lot to say about Eric Lindros. So hang on for that. But right now, Let's talk about the Eagles. Of course, the day after, we usually recap what happens on Sunday. And we'll do that in a second because they beat the Bears 25-20. But the bigger story is the quarterback. Now, if you were watching that game on Sunday, you saw Jalen Hurts go down hard on his throwing shoulder. He got hit on his left shoulder and forced down on his throwing shoulder. I was watching the game at the time, and I said, boy, that's a, that's a hit that usually knocks a quarterback out. That's like an AC joint sprain, separated shoulder. He got right back up, and I'm saying, boy, you got to be strong to withstand that hit. As it turns out, it may have been adrenaline that made him play the rest of that game, and he, I think he was 9 for 15 as a quarterback after that play happened. But it, the Eagles now have announced that he has an injured shoulder, and uh, there is no timetable on his return. He's got a sprained shoulder. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. I don't think there is any way that he plays against the Dallas Cowboys Christmas Eve. Of course, we're all looking forward to that game because if the Eagles win that game, they clinch the number one seed, they clinch the division, all that stuff. There are a lot of stakes in that game. But uh, the safe thing to do is to sit him out of that game because they just need one win. 
they can get it against the Saints the following week, or if they don't, it becomes a precarious situation. This may be all of a three-week injury where he has to sit at the rest of the regular season and then get four weeks rest with the bye. We'll know a little bit later. But uh, if they need to win that final game against the Giants to secure everything, do they put him back in the lineup? The easiest thing can happen here is Gardner Minshew wins one of the next two games. I'm not so sure he beats the Dallas Cowboys. I think Minshew can beat the Saints at home, and then we won't have to worry about it. But it'll be a really interesting scenario whether they need the game, last game of the season, and whether they force Hurts to play or they put him in by necessity because they can't afford to fiddle around at that point. So stay tuned. A lot of drama now with a quarterback being hurt. And, of course – this brings up the question. Uh, you know, we've we've all looked at Jalen Hurts like uh, like we're carrying a window, and if we drop it, it's going to break. We love the fun of Jalen Hurts being a running quarterback. We love the RPO situation, which is a major weapon when Jalen Hurts carries the football. But back in our our minds, in the recesses, we're going: Is he carrying the ball too much? Is it a matter of time before he gets banged up? And, of course, what happens now, all the second-guessers come out and go, you run up too much. You run up too much, and this is going to happen. It's about to happen. This is coaching malpractice. I don't know if you can appreciate the the running part of Jalen Hurts, and then when he gets hurt, question it. He is part of what they do, and we always knew that this was a byproduct or could be a byproduct of him running a football. So what's the solution? You take it away? You take it away, maybe they're not the same team. So it, it's a really uh, a, a difficult conundrum to process this with, with Jalen Hurts. Let me bring producer Darren in on this. Darren, you know that the second guesses come after there was a there was a column by Marcus Hayes. I, it was so, so predictable what Marcus would say. And, uh, now they chance to rip the Eagles. Oh, now that he's hurt, they're running it too much. But we enjoyed it every week, what he did. I think the problem, Mike, with – this particular situation is they shouldn't need your MVP quarterback to run the ball 17 times against the 31st ranked run defense at a three win team. The running back has a thousand yard running back and he didn't touch the ball until I think like six minutes left in the second quarter. All right. I don't mind them running hurts a little bit, but why did it take so long for them to get the ball into Miles Sanders hands? That's what bothered me. That's what bothered me the whole game. Uh, the offensive coordinator is my biggest problem with this team at times because he makes decisions where my mind goes right to the one word, inexperience. And I'm not saying he's an inexperienced play caller. He's a little green. It's not like he's a 20-year season veteran. He's not more of Turner. But he makes a lot of decisions in game that, that scream inexperience to me. And that was one of them. You have to understand the situation here. It's 20 degrees. The lake wind is sucking the oxygen out of their lungs. I've been in that stadium this time of year. It literally pulls the air from your, from your body, that lake wind. And, you know, run the ball. Why are you throwing the ball? Why are you making him run the ball? Well, but, but, but he, he is part – Listen, uh, he is part of the running game. Let's face it. All right. Now, the the problem with the game plan was they came out past it early on. And and, uh, obviously the Bears aren't a team that's going to be able to stop the run. So it was peculiar that he had him throw the ball uh, much at at times. But when they run the ball, 
He's part of the running game. The quarterback is part of the running game. I get you that Miles Sanders has to touch the ball more. But uh, I, I think we're, we're missing the point that part of the running game and why it's so successful and why Miles Sanders is so successful is because the quarterback is also a running threat. Look, I'm a fan of offensive teams that can change their game plan week to week. We talked about it. The Eagles have had some success doing that. They'll run for 351 week because that's what the defense calls for. And they come back the following week and throw for 350 because that's what that defense calls for. Well, this is a situation where this defense called for the running back to touch the ball 25 times. And they came out throwing and they came out with too many RPOs. And to me, that was a problem because of this particular game in this particular weather. I get it. I get it, but that doesn't mean that Hurts wasn't going to get hurt because he's going to carry the ball. I get that Miles Sanders should carry the ball more. That doesn't mean Hurts is not going to carry the ball. So uh, this is the type of thing that, that can happen. But you he's such a part of, the, of their dynamics of what they do offensively that you can't also say, let's just turn him into a straight drop-back quarterback. That They're not going to do that. So it, it happened, and now they got to deal with it. So let's look back at the Bears game because I, I did think the game plan was a little weird. It, it, in several games, they have attacked the other team's weakness greatly. They, they okay, this team can't cover the pass, let's pass. This can't, can't cover the run, let's run. They've done that. Now, for some reason... In this game, they decided to pass in, in cold weather. Uh, and, and Jalen Hurts is not a cold-weather quarterback, which worries me a little bit for the playoffs. I can tell it he has not been used to throwing a football in cold weather where, where he's ever played, and it's going to get colder and colder. Uh, but that's beside the point. Uh, the game plan was to throw. They said they liked some matchups against the quarterbacks, whatever. Uh, now, uh, this was the ultimate human nature game. I heard John McMullen say that. It works at uh, our network at Jacob Media. Human nature means do you know you're better than this team. You know you got Dallas uh, 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 the next week. You know you just played a tough division game. This is in between where you're not going to be at the razor's edge. You see it all the time where a team will play down a little bit to the competition. The Eagles knew they were going to beat the Bears. And so they they weren't uh, as focused offensively, at least. Uh, Jalen was a little shaky in the first half throwing the ball. Maybe it was because of the call. They did get away from the running game, a strange coaching uh, decision. There was that dynamic of a sandwich game they turned the ball three times oh they turned it over three times and still wound up winning the game and and as bad as we looked at that offense they wind up with 424 yards 27 yards a total offense on some monster explosive plays throwing the football A.J. Brown, career high, 181 yards, 68-yard bomb, which was important, averaged 20.1 on his reception. Devontae Smith, 126 yards, a 45-yard piece in that game. He averaged 25.2 for per reception, 307 yards in the air, all right? And, And they survive a team. Frankly, the Bears weren't good enough to take advantage of the gifts that the Eagles gave them three turnovers like that. You should be uh, uh, take over uh, and, and accept those gifts and probably win the game. Bears aren't there yet. Justin Fields isn't there yet, although he's one of the best quarterback runners I've ever seen. So let's look now at what I think are the pivotal parts of this game. There's three of them for me. Uh, the 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 most, most pivotal part of this game, in my opinion, and it's been kind of underplayed. Happened with the Bears leading six to three, and Hertz was picked off by Kyler Gordon. On a bad throw, uh, 
Uh, and it was kind of a lazy route by, by Quez Watkins on that play. So he returns it to the Eagles 25. Now the Bears are up. Six to three, they're at the 25. That's a team that's not good at They have to take advantage of that. Like, they have to score a touchdown, get, get the ball to 25, which would have put them up 13 to three and given them a fighting chance. What happens? Well, they go backwards. Reddick gets a sack in there. They wind up. They start to drive to 25. They wind up punting the football. Now, that's a bad team. Seriously, you get your situation where you can score, take control, maybe think about an upset, and and you get pushed backwards to the point where you have to punt the freaking ball. And, of course, the Eagles get to score before halftime to go 10-6. I thought that was a major part uh, of that game. Uh, and that was the quarterback run where they caught uh, Jaquan Brisker in a blitz. And it was a, a, it had to be a check down, although Lane Johnson said after the, uh, the game that it was a called play. It may have been a called play, but they saw one high safety in a blitz situation. And it was blocked perfectly to the right. And he was untouched for that touchdown. And that put him up 10-6. to Let me just say uh, a word on Hassan Reddick. Because he's having a monster year. He is flying around. He has an earlier sack. And he should have had another one that Fields squirmed out of. I don't even know how he did it. He squirmed out of it. And then he he did a a, a spin cycle uh, and and scored a touchdown on the play. But they ruled he had stepped out of bounds. 71 yards when he carries in the first half of that day. All right, here was the second most pivotal play. 58-yard kickoff return by Boston Scott. They're up 10-6. to six. He returns the kickoff 58 yards to open the second half. Uh, and that leads to, to, the, to the great sideline bomb to A.J. for 29 yards, which gets it to the two. And Hurts sneaks it in, makes it 17-6. That's really all they needed. They took control of, of the game right there. And then, of course, there was the clincher. The 68-yard bomb on a third and six uh, to A.J., uh, and the two point conversion, which uh, which gave them enough points, even though the Bears would score uh, a, a touchdown to make this final score closer. But again, this is a game where the Bears aren't a good enough team to beat an Eagles team, which was not exactly on the razor's edge in this game, uh, and they just were unwilling or in, uh, incapable of taking advantage of the gift of turnovers that uh, they had uh, given uh, the Bears. So uh, let's look ahead at, at Dallas now. Um, you know, when we looked at this game full strength, I wondered, you know, a Dallas loss to Jacksonville, a terrible loss like that, does that make Dallas more dangerous in a game like that? Because now they have to wipe that away and, and they have to actually give it really focused and, 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 and they're incentivized to win this game at home. And then uh, now you got the, the Jalen Hurst dynamic and he's not going to be playing to play against Minshew. You know, I, in my study of professional sports, Human nature is also involved in this kind of thing. The Cowboys now look at this game. They've gone, they were actually a point favorite in this game prior to Jalen Hurts' news coming out. They're now a five point favorite. Uh, now, there's two dynamics here. Now, Dallas can, can really uh, uh, have a major advantage in winning this game, or they can go, uh, well, we should win this game now since Hurts isn't playing. It'll make it easiest for, to win it. And if a team that thinks that invariably gets stung. So I don't know how this is going to happen. It is possible that Minshew goes in there and wins the game because of that kind of a dynamic where there's an automatic letdown on the other team. And they say, well, we're not facing Hurts. We should win this game easy now. And, and, and believe me, pro players think that everybody's a human being. And, and they think that way. So I, I don't know. Uh, Darren, let me bring in on that. 
the dynamic now for this game. How do you see it? I thought the Eagles were 10 to 12 points better with with Hurts. I still I, the Cowboys are going to lose on Saturday to a guy that was living in a friggin' van all last summer. Okay, he's going to go in. He'll be fine. They'll keep the game plan a little bit more conservative. They're still the best team in football, top to bottom. They really don't have any other weaknesses. They got the backup quarterback in. That will elevate everyone else's game. The Eagles aren't going to go in there and take this game off. Everyone, All the other starters are going to play. They're going to go in there. They're going to be more focused because they have the backup quarterback. And I'm really, I'm still not worried about the game Saturday night. I think the Eagles go into Dallas and win. Get the egg nugged out. Merry Christmas. Do you find it interesting that da- Dallas was a point favorite before the Hurts news even broke? Because Vegas puts if the if if that if Vegas makes the Eagles a three point favorite, everyone is going to bet Dallas, and that's not what Vegas wants. They got to make how do they even things out a little bit here? So they make the Dallas Cowboys a one point favorite. That will get some Eagle money. That will get some Dallas money. That's all that line meant to me. Okay. All right. Christmas Eve is going to be interesting. And by the way, uh, we will be doing a postgame show, the Jacob Media postgame show, uh, the Eagles postgame show with Seth Joyner. We're working Christmas Eve. We're working Christmas Eve. We're doing the postgame show. So so there you go. I'll, uh, I'll have you on. I'll be a few whiskeys deep. I'll, I'll have you on at that point. Yeah, be- beautiful. I won't be a few whiskeys deep. Or maybe I will and make more interesting postgame show. Uh, all well, right, you're so- doing it from home, right? You're not going to be on location, right? Yes, yeah, yeah we're, we're doing it from re- uh, remote. They're giving us the Christmas Eve. All- One of the main reasons is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, big uh, casino uh, action and uh, uh, rooms that are taken. A lot of people like to get away on the holiday. So I don't know if Ocean was excited about having to give up some rooms for us to stay. So one of the reasons we're doing it remotely. Uh, but in any event, we'll, we'll be with you. It should be interesting uh, doing it really because we'll all be, I think Seth Joyner will be in in Arizona doing it. We'll be, we'll be all over the place. So that's going to be an interesting post-game show uh, on Christmas Eve following the Eagles-Dallas game. All right, let's look at the NFL playoff picture right now. Eagles still with the number one seed, and they're going to get the number one seed. I'm really not worried about that, even though we've created a scenario where maybe they have to bring Hurts back for the final game of the year to get that one win that they need. So right now, the seventh seed, Washington, will be at the second seed, Vikings. Uh, more more on, on the Vikings in a bit as we go around the NFL. Uh, that's one of the most ridiculous results I've ever seen. But we'll get to that in a second. The number six seed Giants. Big win over the Commanders. At the three seed, the 49ers. Uh, the fifth seed, the Cowboys are still into that fifth seed. They'll be at the lousy uh, four seeded uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and you can uh, you can extrapolate that out all you want. Uh, so I'll have the Vikings being the Commanders, although the Vikings could very well lose that game, which would be advantageous for the Eagles. But if you go to chalk, the winners would be the Vikings, 49ers, and the Cowboys, which would make the Eagles' first playoff game still against the Cowboys, the third meeting of those particular two uh, teams in the AFC. The Bills' number one seed, it'll be seven-seeded Miami at number two seed. The Chiefs, possible that could be an upset. The six-seeded Chargers playing well right now, but the other team's playing better. At the three-seed Bengals and the Ravens, the fifth seed, they stink right now. 
and they're lucky because they play an equally stink. The Titans right now are the four seed. I mean, that's a joke. So if I'm going to take take that out, I, I'll, I'll go with the Chiefs. Uh, I'll go with the Bengals, and, and I'll go with the Ravens winning that game. That means the Bills' first game will be against the Ravens. They shouldn't have any problem with that uh, anemic offensive team, uh, which makes the Chiefs and Bengals, again, <laughs> the matchup in the playoffs. All right, let's go around the NFL. And around the NFL, of course, when we follow a football weekend, it's five thoughts that uh, piqued my interest uh, in games that and happenings that occurred. So let's go with uh, uh, the first thing. And, and I know by now it's ancient history, but I, I just referred to it. How on earth can a professional football team, professional football team, professional football staff squander a 33 to nothing halftime lead and lose the game. That's what happened. The Colts up 33-0. They lose to the Vikings. Um, I, I, I don't understand how a coaching staff can allow that. These are I can see it in college, where college kids just collapse. Pro players, coaches can't adjust to stop a steamroll. Jeff Saturday just lost any chance that he had to be the uh, Indianapolis Colts head coach for next year. It is embarrassing. And... The Vikings, who scored all those touchdowns in the second half, they actually punted on their first possession of the second half, and they didn't score first until an 8-22 were left in the third quarter. They piled up 29 points in the remaining 23 minutes, and they punted twice and threw an interception in that whole thing and still got the ball down the field enough to score those 29 points in the remaining 23 minutes to win. That is a flat-out joke. And if that happened in Philadelphia, we will be talking about this for the rest of our lives. There is nothing more embarrassing than that, the biggest comeback in football history. You ought to be embarrassed Saturday. In fact, you should have resigned after that game, or Ursay should have pulled you with a cane out of that locker room. That is ridiculous. All right, number two. The most boneheaded throwing away of a game ever. I, again, I, I I don't know like what goes on in, in some players' brains. And this is from a Patriots team, a Bill Belichick coach team. They actually had a player panic. All right, here's what happened. Final play of the game. It's tied. You're going in overtime. The Patriots have the ball. Yeah, maybe you could try to score, but if you don't score, you don't lose anything. So they handle the play like they're behind and they have to score. They get a good running back play, and that running back laterals it back to go to the the the, the, the whoop-de-doo. Let's see if we can score lateral backwards. It winds up in the hands uh, of a wide receiver. Jacoby Myers, sounds like a law firm. I think it is a law firm, Jacoby and Myers. But anyway, Jacoby Myers gets the lateral. He then panics and tries to pass it across the field behind the play. Chandler Jones, a big big lineman, snatches it in the air, trucks Mac Jones, and scores a touchdown. Now, now, there's so many things wrong with this play. I can't even begin. But let's just start with the final thing that happened. Yo, Mac, you're a football player. Can you make a better effort to tackle the guy? Because if you don't tackle the freaking guy, you lose the game. What are you going to do, like, grab at his ankles? Stand his ass up? Hold him if you have to. I, I, I'm out of energy describing those two plays already. All right. 
I, I've been watching football for, you know, I'm 48, so let's say 44 years. Worked for the league for seven seasons. Watched almost oh, – I loved going back watching all old-time film. I have never in my life seen a play and a game end like that. A super, The game was tied. They weren't even losing. The game was hey. tied. <laughs> uh, really, a, a, Bel- a Belichick coach team, uh, and that happens. Uh, and, 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 like, Mac, listen. I, I, Mac Jones is a big dude. Like he's he's a big kid. Like he's not Britton Covey, dude. You you you're the last line that your team's going to lose if you don't grab him. All right, uh, let's go to the third now. Around the NFL, number three, Cowboys and Jaguars finished. Now the, the Cowboys have weak character. I'm going to tell you right now because they were up 27 to 10 against the, the J- Jacksonville Jaguars in the third quarter of this game. The Jacksonville comes back, takes a 31 27 lead with 10 minutes left. Cowboys answer. All right, they go up 34-31, and, and then uh, uh, they allow Jacksonville to come back to tie with a field goal with zero on the clock. And then Dak Prescott, who's got the interceptions, by the way, he's got that disease, gets pick six. It was a tip ball, but it's a pick six in overtime, and they lose. And it's a weak team. It, it, you're not a championship team if you allow that to happen against Jacksonville Jags, and, and you wind up losing. So I, I don't know how that's going to project to, to next week. All right, number four, Jets and Lions. What a Lions. Yeah, I thought they were a joke. I watched that hard knocks. I thought that coach was a was a joke with that tough guy act. But they're playing well and they're winning games in a row. And here's the thing that I love that they did. Fourth and one, and they're kind of in a quarterback sneak formation. I don't know why more teams don't do that. They take the chance on on rolling back and, and throwing the bomb. I love that because nobody's expecting you can slide somebody out of there in that in that kind of formation. 51 yard TD pass. From Jared Goff to Brock Wright, and it was the game winner. I love the balls on a fourth and one play like that. Instead of going sneak, hey, let's just throw it out for somebody. He's going to be clear. Beautiful play. All right, number five. The Detroit Lions, Mike, are my official team nobody wants to see in the postseason team. Like, that's the team that nobody's going to want to play. Yeah, they still stink. Come on. Uh, all right, the, the, number five, the Bengals um, beat the Bucs. <laughs> This is sad, man. It's sad. I, I hate to see it. My man's going down in the, in, in flames in, in this year. I don't know if he's going to come back now because this this year is going to end so miserably for him. But Tommy Brady had a seventeen nothing lead. He never loses with a seventeen point lead. They lose the game thirty four to twenty three. Darren's BFF forever. Uh, Joe Burrow gets hot. Starts throwing some touchdown passes. Some somebody put the Bucks uh, team out of their misery this year. Unfortunately, there's nobody in the division that can do it. So they're going to get in the playoffs, and, and it's a, it's embarrassing. He, he's definitely regressed. He isn't regressed to the point where he's a joke. But man, they stink, and, and they're not well coached, and they look like they've they've run to the end of the string, and they will definitely be, be beaten in the first round of the playoffs. Bit of breaking news here, Mike. We're not live, obviously. People will have known by the time, uh, but I'll let you know. Dallas Goddard expected, as expected, activated. Will play Saturday against Dallas. All right. Well, that certainly helps, especially if men choose the quarterback. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Well, today we have a very special guest on the line. Of course, he is the longtime Flyer defenseman, 
and I believe it at one point may still be the the, the longest tenured Philadelphia athlete uh, that that was still uh, active. Uh, he is, of course, the great Chris Terrian joins us. Hello, Chris. Hi, good to see you, Mike, and good to hear your voice. And thanks for having me on today. I think I I, I still have. Uh, I was the longest tenured athlete for several years when I played here, but I played so far. It's still I played the most games as a defenseman for the franchise, which someone will eclipse eventually, but. You know, for a push, franchise pushing 60 years, I'll, I'll take that dubious honor. <laughs> well, no, it's not a dubious honor. I mean, it, it, it's fantastic honor. So uh, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, your career. But first, let's talk about the book. You, said you had a lot of courage to release a book like this. It's called Chris Terry and the Road to Redemption. And, uh, you know, since this is a road to redemption, I, I would like you to explain your motivation in, in writing this book. I've talked to other people who have written a book like this that really uh, thought it was important for, for a cleansing reason, for, for, your, for your whole situation and the things you went through. And, of course, if people don't know, uh, Chris, you, you, you battled alcoholism for, for a lot of your years, especially as a player. So, so uh, tell me how this book transpired and what you hope to gain by writing this. Yeah, you know, Mike, and I've told people I had, and again, for the reasons that you mentioned when we first started this interview, you know, I played here a long time, and uh, Triumph Books loves to get kind of regional sports stories of guys that, uh, you know, are in certain areas, and with Philadelphia being such a, uh, you know, an incredible sports market nationally, internationally, everybody knows Philly sports, the history of uh, the athletes, both real and fake, Rocky Balboa, etc. You know, I thought, uh, you know, they wanted to get some hockey stories. And, and, and for a couple of years, I said, ah, I'm not really interested in doing that yet. I was doing my Flyers work. And, and finally, um, you know, after things had changed with the Flyers and my job, my role over there, um, I got approached by Triumph Books again. And, and I said, you know what, I, I do. And I said, I have a story I'd like to tell, though. And the reason for the story ultimately was, you know, I'd been I'd been clean and sober a long time, like 10 years when I was asked to do the book, um, which is a good journey in and of itself. But I hadn't really shared what that looked like to people. So I realized, you know, that for me to do this book the right way um, and to be able to have um, it mean something to other people, I had to be completely honest with who I was about what the book was. And that was about my journey into alcoholism, my journey uh, going through it, and then ultimately the hardest part, but the most rewarding is the recovery part of it. So, you know, I had to bear my soul, um, it'd be as honest as I possibly could. And, and you're right, Mike, there's a lot of that. Guys will tell you there's a cleansing involved. And, and really to to put it behind you, you have to have a level of complete honesty. And that's why I, I tell these stories, you know, so humbly, but also with gratitude because that was my past. But, uh, you know, I'm hoping that this book is able to change the lives of other people that are struggling with addiction, mental health, whatever it may be. And that's what my profession is now. I'm in the addiction treatment industry in Philadelphia in the Delaware Valley, and I couldn't be more proud of it because it links my story directly to what I'm doing now to try to help others. That's fantastic work that you're doing. Uh, but uh, in, in being honest, uh, I, I know that you have exposed a lot of yourself. And, uh, you, you know, your life, and if I can read the story and talking to other people, a lot of your life is in denial, pushing that stuff down. So how difficult was it to bring it up to the surface, knowing that you're telling things about yourself that you might not like about yourself and maybe people uh, didn't have any perception of and maybe it kind of taints your image or whatever. You, I had, you had to go through that process, I guess. I did. And, you know, I think a lot of and a lot of my journey was, you know, I was a good guy in the room when I played. You know, I, I of course, my drinking affects anything. Drinking affects anything anybody goes through. But I don't think I ever sold my soul to the devil, you know, in, in, in on my journey. Um, I did a lot of things that I regret, 
and I did a lot of things that I wish that I didn't do. But again, you know, like when you when you when you tell a story like this, um, again for me to do the book, I I couldn't do something like this at fifty percent and expect the same results. I had to let other people know because I do know, having been in this, you know, whether it's the industry or having been ten years before I started writing this book, as I approached twelve years, you know, one day at a time in, in this February twenty twenty three, I knew that there's other people that were going ex- through exactly what I went through. And would be able to correlate what their experiences look like. The best part for me is when somebody texts me like, hey, you know, Chris or Bundy, whatever it is, man, you know what? I I don't know if people tell you this, but when you share stories on Facebook or the book, stuff I read in the book, you have no idea how much that has helped me understanding more about who I am and to know that I'm not alone. That's what I love people saying that it doesn't matter who you are. If you're a cop, uh, a fireman, a lawyer, a doctor, um, a social worker. People have problems in the world, and and I don't and I can tell you that with the seven billion people on Earth, if everyone if one of them can go through the world unscathed, please let me know about it, uh, because I've yet to see it happen to anybody yet. You know, the world is a place you have to respond to, and and sometimes you know you're going to get dealt a bad hand of cards, whether it be on your watch or or someone else's or life's watch. But it's again, it's about pulling yourself up out of that gutter and never quitting and believing in what is right. And doing the right things about it, but my, my my goal, Mike, when I when I bear my soul and talk about it, um, it's because I know that that is going to truly help somebody else out there. And for me, I, I struggled. Like I was in my own personal hell for probably two full years of my life, where I didn't know what I was coming or going uh, because of alcoholism. It stripped me of everything. But I was able to put my life back together again. And as a result, my four kids were the recipients of that. You know, they got this dad that was present accountable and allowed them to, to kind of flourish and, and, and uh, spread their own wings without having to worry about the, the, the detriment of having an alcoholic parent around. And I wanted to remove that when they were young and I did, and, and I continue to do it every day. Yeah. And of course your daughters are, are great athletes. We'll talk about that a little later, but let's go back to the origin of this because, you know, I, I haven't been around hockey players. I actually covered uh, the flyers like back in the, uh, the latter end of, of Clark's career when McCammon and Pat Quinn were there. Uh, and so I, I know, I know the boys it, it like to pound a little bit and, uh, and a lot of it in hockey is, is peer pressure because that's part of the whole thing, man. You guys drink together and you hang together and all that stuff. Was that the genesis uh, of your problem being a hockey player? in that era where it was commonplace that's a great point mike and you know what i, I yeah and, you, and you've seen it and a lot of the, the writers that go back as you said you know the 80s 70s 80s 90s hockey hockey and drinking beer are were very much part of the culture right like it 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 came from probably the day that hockey was first played a bunch of guys went out and had a cooler or a beer somewhere and they went out and, and in their cars or whatever and and had a party after. And I don't think that that was too much differently. You know, I tell people, yeah, I had to make changes late in my life, but I don't, I don't have regrets in terms of, you know, the player I was or the person I was, you know, I embodied the spirit of what hockey was on the ice, off the ice. Um, and yes, but the culture of the sport is, was a drinking culture. Now that's different. Now it, the drinking is actually kind of frowned upon. And I know guys somehow, some way, when you're in a competitive domain and competitive environment, um, where you go home with pain and anxieties every night, that players will turn to something. Uh, for years, that seemed to be alcohol. And then it went to painkillers. Uh, cocaine was prevalent in the 70s. But guys are going to do something. That's the unfortunate part of it. And I think it's part of professional sports in general. 
uh, to try to get that other competitive high when you're not at the rink or not at the football field or baseball stadium, whatever it may be. So I think that's a challenge for guys. But for me, it was very much part of the it, it was embedded in the culture of the sport. And as you said, Mike, you guys saw that. I mean, it was part of it. There was a time probably you used to go and hang out with a lot of the, uh, the, the hockey guys because I know a lot of the beat writers did. You know, it was just part of the culture of the sport even for them. Well, we used to go across the street. It was the Hilton back then. And I remember covering a game against the Rangers. And, uh, and Ron DeGame ripped up his, uh, uh, his Achilles tendon in, in the first period. And uh, he came in with Phil Esposito late at night. We were all there having a drink. And, and he came in uh, after surgery with the Armani suit on, and he had his, his legs slit, and he, and he had two models on each arm, and he and Espo came in. It was a crazy time, man. And those guys just kept pounding and pounding. He just had surgery. Uh, but but at any event, um, it, it, it the way I read the book is that you then kind of became dependent on it, but you were able to function with it, and you used it almost as – in a medicinal way, explain that part of it. Yes, yeah. So that's that again. That that's I, I think that sums it up perfectly, Mike. I, I was I was basically medicating myself. Like it wasn't people say, "Well, how do you drink like that?" I wasn't drinking anymore. I was just trying to get back in my system what it had lost overnight via withdrawal or whenever you go to bed. And so I always felt like I had to stay at that number. But that's that's the addiction of alcohol, and that's the part that stinks about it. It's a job. Hiding it, make thinking people don't know, not wanting people to know. You under having an understanding that you, you you have to live like this, which sucks. You know, it stinks. It's a lot of work that goes into it. And um, yeah, I became dependent for probably I would say one year, one year before I went away to to Karen treatment centers in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and that that was you know that was a part of me in my life where you're like, man, you can't feel any more broken. It was the end of my career. I had little kids. And I certainly didn't want to, you know, develop an affinity and an addiction to alcohol at, you know, my kids' formative lives. But that's, again, that's when I was in the gutter, and that's the part where you have to pull yourself out of it. And it's hard. It's difficult. We're talking to Chris Terry, and, of course, he's known as Bundy. And I always thought I respect the fact that Bundy's a locker room thing, and, I, and I'm, I'm not a co-player. So, but I'll call you Bundy when we get to the reason why you're yeah. called Bundy. But, but let, let's uh, – Let's talk now uh, a little bit about the, the team and what they knew. And I, I am, I'm certain that your teammates uh, saw you, you drinking, and I, I'm certain that the general manager saw you drinking. Uh, do you blame them for not being stronger? Because they suggested that maybe you were drinking too much and you rebelled against it, which is what a lot of alcoholics do. They're in denial. Uh, in retrospect, uh, should they have shut you down or done more uh, instead of maybe enabling it? You know what? It's, it's funny because I think it was one of those guys where in a lot of ways I became like my own caricature. You know, guys, so I'd been there so long, right? So from, from year one, like I didn't even drink that much when I first came in the league. And I think a lot of guys that had been there for that long had seen me, you know, become the, the life of the party, the guy in the locker room that was the easygoing guy. But I like to drink, go out, hang out, be a good good team guy. Um, you know, I, I don't blame anybody for the team, you know, and I always say like the alcoholic and the person that has to take full responsibility for that. Um, when I look back at it, I just don't know if they knew how serious it was themselves because I, I did hide it. You know, I hid it from the team. I try I even hit it from my roommates. Like, you know, John LeClaire is my roommate. I don't think he even knew. But that was like my last year, Mike. Years before that, like we came to play. There was social drinking, but it was game day. It was game day, and, and that was – it was really my last year, 05, 06. 
uh, where I only played a handful of games anyway that really, I really struggled. Like, that's where I had to medicate myself. Do I blame the Flyers? There was an episode in 2004 where Keith Primo had, uh, he suspected it was, uh, excuse me, 2005, that, that last year. He suspected it was a problem and brought me in the, to Clark's office. And, uh, you know, Clark, I, I think he, I, I almost think he felt for me in a lot of ways. Like, he's like, you know, here's a guy getting brought in by the captain. And he's 34, 35 years old. He probably doesn't need this crap. Um, but again, he didn't know. And I know Primo, I got kind of angry about it because they lost me after. I know Primo was trying to help. It was probably the wrong way to go about it. Um, if I were a GM, it, I, I don't, that's a great question. Because unless the player kind of says to you, or there's an episode, a, a huge episode where there's a derailment, like where a guy doesn't show up for a plane, or he disappears for two days, then I think you have to take action. But if a guy keeps showing up at the rink every morning at 9 o'clock where he's hungover and you don't know it, um, there's not a lot you can do. So for that, I don't blame anybody, nor would I. You know, I'm, I'm the responsible party in this. I was the adult in the room, and I don't blame anybody at all for it. We're talking to Chris Terry, and, and, uh, uh, who's written a book, uh, uh, Chris Terry and the Road to Redemption. It's a great read. It really is. It's very revealing. It talks a lot of hockey, and we're going to talk a lot of hockey uh, uh, in, in a little bit. But j- just the, the, the last thing about this was the rehab process, as far as I can tell, um, it, it's difficult. I know a lot of, of addicts that go the first time go get back on it. And I think that happened to you. I mean, your, your sister tragically died in the middle of this, that, that really made you look at yourself, but then you, you kind of got off again and had to go back. So how difficult was it to finally latch on to the recovery process? So I always say I had like two runs with alcohol. The first one was the one that I had in my hockey career where my blood alcohol was as high as anybody would have found in the world, on the planet, and I mean that. Uh, it was, just, it was uh, like 0.53, right? Something like that? Well, yeah, 0.63. And like even at Karen, the people were like, I've, we've never seen anything like this. And I was walking and talking. Like I am right now, almost. I, people are like, that's impossible. I always tell a joke of a cop pulled me over and he gave me like an instant breathalyzer. He would have said, well, you don't look drunk, and this thing must be broken. Go, go ahead on your way. But you know, you know that's how sick I was. That's how evolved my disease had become. So, um, you know, and then there was a second run. So what happened was, is I I called the league and I said, you know, I I I need help bad. And doc, the doctor from the NHL came down and saw me, and I was ready to go away. And and I got a call from home that something had happened with my sister. She had a cardiac death, and you know. A cardiac event. She died from it a week later. Uh, we didn't know what it was. And so I had to pause that, go through her whole funeral, medicating myself, going through these awful emotions, eulogizing her. You know, she's my only sibling. Uh, and then when I got back about 10 days later, I did go away. And I got about two years sober when I went to Karen, which was an amazing place. You know, it's in Warnersville, Pennsylvania. People don't even know it in Philadelphia. It's one of the best places in the world. And it's just an hour 15 outside of the city. So I went there, I was broadcasting the Flyers, you know, as a personality, they gave me a chance to, to do radio, and I did that, and I, and I fell off the wagon about two years after that, but it never went back to those levels again, it was more about just secretly kind of, you know, a, a real hiding, an alcoholic hiding his liquor, but in small doses, the kids were getting older, and then that, that and that went for a while, and it was really me the last time, Mike, where I just said, you know what, enough's enough, like, this is, I'm done, I'm tired, I've had enough. Um, I didn't like who I was even after I'd stopped, you know, I was still doing, you know, I was doing radio, going to work every day with the team traveling. 
And, uh, you know, I realized that the, really the most important thing was the kids. I couldn't, I couldn't look at myself anymore knowing that that's what was going on in my life. And, and to me, I had to make changes and it was for them, you know, it really was. And, and, uh, I had to find something at first to stop. And I realized that, you know, I didn't bring kids in the world to be a drunk. Um, I brought them in the world to try to change, make their lives as good as possible. And, um, and that's what I've tried to do ever since. Um, all right, let's talk some hockey. Uh, because y- you have uh, played with some really good teams and some really interesting players uh, over the years. And uh, I-, I assume as a player, you were in the throes of the Eric Lindros era. And uh, it was an era that probably wasn't rewarded like uh, fans or yourself in the locker room thought it, it shouldn't be rewarded. And you did in the book, did, you did not have a lot of great things to say about uh, Eric Lindros. Uh, Obviously, he was a great player, uh, but there were some things that prevented him from bonding fully with the team. Uh, your book makes the point. Can can you explain what that was about? Yeah, you know what, and I, and I think when I re- kind of revisited, I mean, you know, when I talked about this, like it, I couldn't really do a book without talking about the greats of that era, and certainly Eric was, you know, like him, love him, hate him, whatever. It was the most polarizing player of that of that era. Um, you know, when, when I first got there in 94, I mean, I, he was the most remarkable hockey player I'd seen when he was focused and determined. I mean, he was young. He would put guys through the wall. I mean, we all, every, the whole city knew what he was like. I just felt like, you know, was, the, the, the stuff with the trainer, with John Worley was a part, I think, where he lost a lot of guys, uh, you know, after the, the incident, um, you know, and, and, and a couple of medical situations. And I just felt like when you're going after a trainer making six people. Yeah, let's, uh, let's just stop. Yeah. Yeah, let's stop the, to explain what exactly he did. He he blamed John Worley for uh, improper medical care, basically. Yes. Right? Well, what specifically was it? I think – I'm not sure if we went back to the Nashville, if it was the incident in Nashville where he had to collapse long. And it's just – I just I just felt like, Mike, you know what? At the end of the day, it was too much drama for a guy that the city, the team – the fans had an expectation to win. You know, when I say this, and I don't, I'm not saying it in a way to, to deter what Eric was, but I mean, he was the generational superstar. This city got it. He was the most electrifying player I saw, and he never won. And and, and I really think if there was a, a focused determination, like every generational player that ever played the game won Stanley Cups, multiple Stanley Cups. Eric Lindros was the one that did not do that. And you could say it was injuries or whatever. I think he needed to adjust his game. I do believe there's a lot of good in Eric. I mean, I've had things like over the years where he did a lot of great things for people, and he's a, and he had a good heart. Um, but I just felt like, you know what, at the end of the day, I don't care what, what you do like off the ice, and there's certain things I could live with, and most people could. But when the conversation becomes about one guy, and it's about things outside of hockey – and it had too much garbage involved. That's, I think, where guys begin to lose you. And I think that's where things kind of go off the rails. And um, Yeah, I mean, ho- uh, yeah, uh, Chris, t- hockey is such a bonding locker room yeah. thing. And I-, I think you make the point that he really didn't understand how to bond. That, and maybe it came from entitlement because he was the greatest thing ever from age 12 or whatever. And, and so he, he felt he had to be in that realm and separated, but that probably doesn't work in a hockey locker room, right? Well, it's, it, it is. It's all about team. And the, and the great players, uh, even the Crosbys, Wayne Gretzky's, um, the list goes on, Mario Lemieux, they find a way to elevate everybody else in that room. Right, they find they're the leader of the team, and they find that they have a certain element about them. It's why they have that unique presence on the ice. 
why they elevate their game at key times. Um, you know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to talk about stuff that went on in terms of the other things. I mean, like the Detroit. Right, we're down three nothing in Detroit, and and the captain walks out the back of the building to avoid the media. You don't do that. You know, I was golfing with John LeClaire and Craig Berube a couple of years ago, and, and, and you know, these discussions always come up. You know, players, you talk about the past. And, and, and you know, it's, I think I think Berube said it best, and, of course, he would say it better than anybody. He said, you know what that guy needed? He needed somebody when he was 11 years old to grab him by the scruff of the neck and say, you know what, I don't care what your mom and dad say, um, but you're going to learn to be a good teammate right now. Yes, you're better than 17-year-olds right now, but it's what – you do in that locker room and how your teammates will rise to the occasion with you. And unfortunately here in Philadelphia, yeah. it just never happened. It just never happened. And he was, I said, I said in the book, Mike, and I'll finish with it. He is the best player that I've ever seen at the top of his game, better than anybody I've ever watched. And unfortunately I don't, I don't have anything to show for it. He was a captivating player, no, no question about it, and and I loved his style. But you know, you point out some things that are, that are that are really interesting. That uh, he was a steamroller, and and he he came up the middle of the ice with his head down all the time, which made him susceptible uh, to to taking uh, a lot of uh, hits and and damage. And uh, you you make the point that he wasn't willing to alter his game, and had he been willing to do that, he would have been a much better superstar. Well, you can't you can't play like a wrecking ball five years into your career at that kind of, of of damning pace. Like you can hit guys and send a message, but to play completely recklessly and to skate through the middle of the ice at like twenty six years old, twenty seven years old, in the best men's league in the world against guys that were headhunters, Casparitis, uh, Scott Stevens. I mean, everybody in the league knows to keep your head up with guys like that. Um, but again, I think that that goes back to the dominating force that Eric once was big, physical, strong guy that probably never, you know, I remember going to a junior game and I think maybe I mentioned in the book, I remember a guy that was like six, one, just going to take a full run at Eric. He just fell down, just fell right off him. And, and that's, you know, that, that happens. But when you get to the other league where guys are strong and they're smart and you're the best of the best, you're going to have guys that are going to try to stop the other team's best player. And, and certainly that's two guys. I mean, Scott Stevens did it in a way that. You want to talk about eliminating a guy on the other team at a critical time? That would be the dictionary definition of a game seven in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the drama you're talking about, of course, that we all know about the drama. There were the medical problems as well as the, the, the parental involvement. And, you know, I, I've always found it fascinating that a pro athlete could have his parents uh, that involved, that when you reach a level like being a professional athlete, your parents should drop you off at the door and then it's your life. But they did not do that. And it caused a lot of problems with an old school guy like Clark who didn't see that part of it at all. Uh, and, and so it, it, it really never developed. It was a sad era in a lot of ways because it could have been so different. But that said, now you mentioned John LeClaire. Now, John and Eric have been together lately. I had them both on my radio show at one point. They remained, uh, I mean, he's Eric's as close to John as he could be to close to anybody. You were John's roommate. Did you ever talk to John about uh, what made Eric tick? Yeah, yeah, it's a strange dichotomy, right? Like, me and Johnny are super tight, and then Johnny and Eric are tight. You know, so, you know, but I, I don't have anything against Eric anymore. When you get to 50 years old, Mike, like, it's like, I got to move on. Like, it's, you know, whatever. If he doesn't like me for it, great. If he's got some shitty things to say about me, too, so be it. I don't really care. I know who I was, uh, you know, and, and but I think with Johnny, like, yeah, do I talk to Johnny? I talk to Johnny all the time. Do we talk about Eric? Not not usually. Um, you know, we'd, I'd rather tell him, 
But at the time, did you talk about it? At the time, did you talk about it? Because that, when it was happening in live time, and Claire's close to him, and you're his roommate, and you guys are all talking about Eric. It, you know, he was sometimes polarizing. He was on that side of the room. It looks like you guys were on that side of the room. And I just wondered if you guys had talked to the people that were close to him to say, what, what makes the guy tick? Why can't he be a better teammate? I think guys talked about it, but I just felt like there was too much soap opera involved that you don't want to deal with. You know, I mean, you're getting into the second half of the year when a lot of this stuff went down. And guys just want to focus on playing hockey, getting ready for the playoffs. I will say the one part, and I, this is the part that would be undeniable to most guys, the 2000 playoffs um, where Eric was out for the first, you know, almost three rounds, that was the, the closest I've ever been on a flyer team in my life. That group of guys, the five overtime win. And, and I think even if you ask like Keith Jones, and I, I've talked, Jonesy said it, he goes, that was our time. It was nobody else's. And um, that was because we were trying to win in spite of what wasn't in the lineup. And that was Eric. You know, we were saying, you know, hey, people say we couldn't win without him. I really do feel to this day, if there was no Eric in the playoffs that year, we win the Stanley Cup. And I absolutely would go to, will go to my grave with that thinking, and it'll never change. And, and of course, in the book, and I remember in live time, uh, there was a lot of sentiment in the locker room that you guys did not want him to come back, and he was itching to come back, and he was planning to come back, and uh, and and that affected you, like the worry about he was going to come back and mess things up, and then finally it comes to fruition where he does come back. So describe how the, the team processed that. We had a meeting after Game Five, and we really, really did not play well. We lost. Lost 4-1, I think, to the Devils. And Craig Ramsey says, I want to see you six guys in the room. It was me, Tockett, Luke Richardson, uh, Craig Berube, Mark Recchi, and myself, and one more guy. He's, and I remember Rammer, Rammer sat in the, on his desk and he said, guys, what do you want to do here? What should? What do you think we should do? And I remember saying, no, leave him, leave him in the press box. And I actually said, you know what, guys? I was the first one. I said, if, if – if, and a couple other guys corroborated. I remember Rick Tockett said, well – Here's the way we got to look at it. Do you want Peter White in the lineup or do you want Eric Lindros in the lineup? <laughs> that was kind of a tough one to like, you know, it's true. Like where you're like, I get it. But here's the thing. We like Peter White. <laughs> like It didn't matter. Like Peter White was doing his job. We were, he was with us for two rounds and a half was part of it all. And, but, you know, I understand Tockett's making a valid hockey point. And I, and I really do think that decision was made at the very, very top. Like, I think that was was Clark and, and Snyder that said bring him back. I think if you left it to Ramsey and the coaches and any of the, of the top-level players, I personally think that they – I don't think he would have been back. But that's that's one of those decisions. You know, again, I don't, I don't blame Clark or Snyder for that because it's one of those cases like we lost game five. I wish we would have ended it in game five. That would have changed the whole uh, – you know, direction of where this whole thing was going because then he had, we had a, a game six, we lose game seven, the pressure's on. Um, it was just a mess. That whole, that whole week was a mess. But what happened was for whatever reason, our best players disappeared. They couldn't play when he came back in. Like we lost the, the, the best of Mark Recchi, the best of Eric Desjardins. And that's ultimately why the frustration from guys now, they don't understand, they have to be on the team. It's not that he came back. It's that it sucked the life out of the other guys that were playing so great for us, and we're determined to to finish this push. Yeah, that that's that's really sad that that transpired there because he did. I think he scored a goal in Game Five late in the game, and then he played decent Game Six, and then Game Seven is when 
that was game Stevens six. Hit. Like that, he only played two games. Six. Okay, all right. So he played two games, and, and one was decent when he came back, and then he, he got blasted. Uh, all right, so so let's let's now uh, let's look at the error because the error was a, an error of winning for you guys, and. Uh, and it stings when you look back at it because there was the Devil Series that you lost, and then uh, the Panthers the following year, and then, of course uh, against the Red Wings, which was uh, a disappointment for everybody. So w- when you look back, w- what kind of uh, what kind of regrets do you have about the whole era not being able to win the Cup? Just, just that right there, you know. Like I always said, you know, take Marty Brodeur probably cost me one Stanley Cup. So- along the road, uh, just being that good a goalie. But I just I just think the teams we had, um, you know, really, I think the city deserved one Stanley Cup out of it. I think that we had the teams to do it. Um, it just didn't just didn't come together. You know, we lost America, that 2-1 series. That was 96, actually, before the Red Wings uh, the next year. But, you know, we had a 2-1 lead in that series. Uh, they won three straight. You know, it was a, that was one of those series where I, we, we easily could have won again. It was every year if things went differently, we could have won. Um, 97 was, was that year where, you know, we, we win three series, I think four, one, four, one, four, one, and we get to the finals against the Red Wings. I'm like, wow, is it this easy? I mean, it can't just be this easy. And, uh, and we knew we found out pretty quickly just how good a team that was. But again, you know, I think that there would have been more there for us, uh, against a great Detroit team and kudos to them. They, they ended up being a dynasty and, uh, they, they did the things that we weren't able to do. And Nicholas, uh, excuse me, um. Yeah, Nicholas Lidstrom, pretty good defenseman. <laughs> so, I, no loss, uh, no loss there at all, Mike. I mean, you look back at it; they were just a better team, no matter what. They, they were, but it, it was. Uh, I mean, the way that unraveled, and then Terry Murray with the choking situation comment, and it was just so heart wrenching to see that happen to you guys in that series. Yeah, and I and I think when I look at the Terry Murray that comment, I don't think he was talking to the team. I think he was talking to eighty eight. Uh, I don't, you know, I mean, you're calling someone a choker. You can't collectively call a team a choke against a team like Detroit. So I always, I always thought that that was directed right at the captain. I felt like that was anyway. Yeah, he didn't come up big in that series, that's for sure. Uh, let's talk about coaching, Brother Murray, because you played for like it had to be seven coaches. I mean, and I was I always wonder about this hockey dynamic of changing coaches and what what they actually mean in a room. But it was Ramsey, and then it was uh, 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 Nielsen was in there, and Billy Barber was in there, and, and Terry Murray, and uh, and the worst guy you described, Ken Hitchcock, who everybody hated. Uh, what did I miss anybody in there? Did I miss a coach? Yeah, wait. Did you I get probably, William Cashman? Oh, Cashman. That's right. Cashman, who lasted like uh, about a, two months and realized that he it was over his head as a head coach. Uh, I got to tell you a great Wayne Cashman story. <laughs> you want to hear a good Wayne Cashman story? Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. So we're sitting in, we're sitting in, this is, this is unbelievable. And, I, I, and we get in all the coaches after we're sitting in San Jose one night waiting to go for dinner me and Luke Richardson. And Cash was kind of this like real, like, I mean, if there, you couldn't put six more layers of old school on Wayne Cashman if you tried. Like, this guy was the definition of old school sports. So he's standing outside the, the, the hotel in San Jose, and he's jingling change in his pocket. And me and Luke Richardson uh, walk out. We're like, hey, Cash, uh, how you doing, buddy? He goes, good. Good. He goes, I got a dinner. I got to meet the friend for dinner. I said, oh, good, good. Uh, who is it? A friend out here? He goes, I can't say. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, have a great dinner. 
<laughs> so, so he starts. I start walking with Luke, and he goes, "You guys, come here. I'm going to tell you." He goes, "I'm meeting an old friend tonight named Whitey Bulger." <laughs> <laughs> the Boston mobster. Oh, <laughs> oh, all of a sudden, this limo, like this big suburban, pulls up, and the window cracks like two inches, and I see these two eyes. And, he, and all I hear is, get in the car, Cash. <laughs> <laughs> suburban disappeared. I looked at Luke. I said, I don't know if this guy's stories are true, but man, are they good. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I also have a Cashman story because I, I don't even remember, but I worked uh, when I first broke into Rio I worked with a, a guy named Steve Fredericks. And, and yeah. Steve uh, w- was a recovering person as well. And he battled it for a lot of years and he got, uh, I mean, a hard life and you know, heroin was involved the whole thing. So he spent a lot of time in Boston and he, he covered the Bruins, a broadcaster for the Bruins. And he got close to all the players. And of course, back then, those guys were crazy. Cashman and, and Bo- Johnny Buchak and all, all those guys back there, the great name Cheevers and all those guys. So he would go out with them, and Cashman was his running buddy. And they would drink it until uh, all hours. So he said that we we drank until uh, 5 in the morning one night, and the Bruins are playing that day. So uh, he goes into the locker before the game, and Cashman's sitting on his locker stoop. And uh, he says, uh, uh, how you doing there, Hoss? And uh, he said Cashman looked up at him and put his head there and barfed all over his shoes. <laughs> Like, like like last night's like he goes that's how I'm doing <laughs> so, uh, so that's you can't you can't make up those stories man they're classic stories uh, so so tell me about the dynamic of a coach in a locker room in a hockey it happens more than any anything Chris you know that they change coaches like they change uh, socks uh, in, in the locker room so what is it about the dynamic of a coach and what do you mean what does he mean to a hockey team and, and why the changes all the time yeah I it's all about the voice, right? They also they always say you can't fire twenty players, but you can fire one coach. Yeah, I mean, I look at you know. So when I came in with Terry Murray, was a good coach for me. He helped me, you know, develop my game, get better. I went through the benchings and all that. Um, and then Terry, you know, when, when Terry got fired for that comment, you know, they brought in another guy, Wayne Cashman, and, and Roger Nielsen, Craig Ramsey, kind of like one package. They were all they're all buddies, but. It's all a matter of whatever you think your team needs, I think. And that's why they go from the good cop to the bad cop. Um, There's certain coaches, like I loved Wayne Cashman, you know, easy to talk to, real players type of coach. Craig Ramsey, same way. Um, Roger Nielsen was kind of an embodiment of both, would deal with management and players, but he was great with players. And then that that kind of changes the script a little bit. You bring in, you know, they brought in Billy Barber, who has had more of an edge to him. I like Billy. Uh, funny guy, uh, you know, very much part of the, the history of the Flyers. Um, you know, and then Hitchcock came in after that, right, where he was more of a disciplinarian and, and a guy just getting your wheelhouse for no good reason. Not a liked guy uh, by many at all. Um, but he would be the only one. I think most guys like the coaches we had. And, but there was just – there was right, there were a lot of them. Billy Barber is funny because you described it. It's funny because there's a dichotomy there because he was a guy, work harder, work harder. That, that was his message. And yet he had some sophisticated playbook that he wanted to execute. The, the playbook was actually the, the funniest part of the whole uh, the whole thing. Like we actually had a, we had a playbook. And I'm like, I don't know how you use a playbook in hockey because everything just moves so quick. And and that was the funny story with Donald Brashear where Brashear came in. He was only there like a week and. And he, he, you know, I did impersonations and Brash comes in and he goes, what the hell are you doing, Billy? Like, what is going on here with all this? This is, you know, what, what are we doing? What system? And Billy says in front of the whole team, 
You know, I'm really sorry there about this. Uh, he says to Mike Stutters, Mike, get the whole of the playbook. He doesn't know what's going on here yet. <laughs> Uh, playbook that's called that's terrible yeah, yeah. well Hitchhack, Hitchhack was universally hated by everybody uh and somehow he had success for a while but who was the guy on your team that just had enough of him one game and turned around and said shut up you fat fuck yeah who that, was, was that? that was that was JR uh, Roenick and uh <laughs> like and he would come off and Hitch would like launch himself against the glass and he'd be like you know, like, ah, oh, you guys, what are you doing? You know, he always, like, he'd have, like, this groan moan. And JR came back, and it was, like, three seconds, right? His head forward, and he just turns. He goes, would you shut your fat fucking mouth? <laughs> well, I used to hear it all the time on the other, on the other, uh, like guys on the other team. When he, he'd love to, like, yap at guys on the other team. I don't know why, because that never works out well. And I used to have, like, guys like Steve Ott, who I ended up playing with for a cup of coffee in Dallas. And um, he looked at him. He's like a 19 or 20-year-old at the time. He's like, remember he said something like, Hitch, he's like, dude, you were like a 500-pound pile of shit standing on the end of a bench. <laughs> and, like, the worst part is, is like, like, guys on your own team are like, you're on the bench, and you're like, oh, that's funny. <laughs> so... Oh, that's crazy. Uh, let, let me, let me, yeah, I'm, <laughs> these hockey coaches have just been baffling to me as I follow hockey all these years and the changes, especially in Flyerville. But but let's talk about the players you play with. You play with some great players and you, you play with some memorable players and you, you pointed out uh, the affection you have for certain players. And uh, so, so who were the, the, the players that you play with that you enjoyed the most uh, and who, who were the players that you either played with or against that you enjoyed the least? And of course, it, uh, within this whole thing is you, you, you being able to match up. Well, you're like the ultimate guy to match up with Yarmir Yager. So we'll, we'll address that in a little bit. But the, the players that you played with as Flyers that stand out, I know Desjardins got to be one of them, right? Yeah, I'm Desjardins. Ton of respect for him. I mean, very, very professional on the ice. My longtime partner. Uh, we had great, great on ice chemistry. And, uh, you know, I think when I, you know, I talk to Eric, you know, it's always like people would say, oh, you were Desjardins' partner. But what I love when you ask Desjardins, he'll tell you that I was the best partner he ever had. So it makes me feel good. I liked having the puck also. I wasn't just a defensive guy that would allow Eric to go up. We worked in tandem and in unison together. And I always say the success I had against Yager, you can't just do that with one guy. You got to know you got a partner back there that's going to help you and have your back too. So, and I, and I knew that. Mark Recchi, John LeClaire, Rick Tockett, Craig Berube, Luke Richardson – Probably my favorite teammates. Uh, they're all veteran guys. But, I, I, you know, Luke was from Ottawa. Uh, Rick Tockett just a guy bonded with, um, you know, another guy from Ontario. Keith Jones is another guy, too. Really got, you know, we didn't play together a long time. But I had a real affinity for those guys. They were very professional, likable guys, uh, well-respected amongst their peers in the league and coaches. And, and I always tried to stay on the right side of things, you know, in terms of even I drank it. I tried to do the right things. I never got in any trouble you know, in, in terms of with the law or, or, or hurting anybody. So, you know, I kept – I was able to keep my, my wits about me with that. But I, I really have a lot a lot of respect for those guys. And uh, it certainly made my journey um, in the NHL a memorable one. You know, I had a lot of great teammates over the years, Mike, uh, many, many of them. And even I go back to, like, talking about Eric. Like, there was years Eric was a very good teammate too, you know, and a lot of fun to be around. Uh, but there, Bob Clark, I'll say one thing about Bob Clark. Uh, you can say what you want about him. Um, he put, he did a great job putting, getting players in here that had good chemistry. 
um, and, and tried to do that. That was really because of who he was as a player and probably what he'd seen as a younger guy with the Flyers. That 74 through 70, you know, 73 through 75 team in Philadelphia is one for the ages in the lore of, of hockey. And uh, a lot of the, the good values that those guys had and, and, and started have carried through the, the fabric of this organization. That's something to be proud of. It's a great organization. I know it's having a hard time right now. Uh, but I have such a great affinity and love for Flyers, the Flyers fans, and the people in the city, um, simply because they care so much. Who 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 were the, the the bitches in the game that you played together that you just didn't like or you didn't think could play or who, who defrauded a lot of people into thinking they were NHL players? Yeah, there's probably a few. I, I mean, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> Trying to think, like you talk about Yager, like I, I love playing against Yager. You know, there's no phoniness in that man. He tried to go wide every time. Trying to think, there's always, there's always like one of those guys where you have like a, they have like a breakout year, and you're wondering like, how the hell did he score? Like Rob Brown scored 50 goals in <laughs> Pittsburgh one year, uh, playing with Mario Lemieux. You know, I, I will say this early in my career, Mike. You talk about guys I did not like, and there wasn't a lot of them. Like you were on the ice and. You know, there's there's characters in the past, like Dale Hunter. I played against the Washington Capitals variant of Dale Hunter, who was just one of the nastiest mm-hmm. bastards you'll ever see in your life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, uh, remember Thomas Sandstrom? I mean, he was yeah. despised, uh, right, by the whole league. And Dave Brown cross-checked yeah. him right in the head. Yeah. And I remember, like, my first yeah. year, he, like, speared somebody. And I remember staying, and I, I went up to him on the ice, and I'm like, you know what, dude? I'm like, I don't know you. I've ever played you before. But no wonder Brownie cross-checked you right in the fucking head. He didn't even know what to say. But he did. And Brownie, I think Brownie at the time in like the 80s got suspended for like 20 games, which was now you'd be put in jail, I guess, for for a correlated 20 games. They'd lock you up and probably hide the key for a month. Yeah, that was the thing about old time hockey. You can't replace those stories. Let's move into your media career. So we're talking with with Chris Terry, known as uh, Bundy in the locker room, because first of all, the the nickname comes from from Al Bundy from Married with Children. But but what what was the connection? You looked like him? You acted like him? What was it? I always tell people, Mikey, yes, it's, it's Al, not Ted. That the comparison, which is a good thing. So, uh, um, yeah, Craig, I used to watch Married with Children, and Craig McTavish, I guess he knew a guy or played with a guy out in Edmonton that reminded me of him, but I also love watching Married with Children. I'd be in there on Nickelodeon when I was a rookie. I think I've had the name Bundy since, like, my 10th day in my first pro training camp, which is incredible. I mean, I had guys on the other team, like, you know, where something would happen at the end of playing, and when I was playing, some guy would be like, fuck you, Bundy. I'm like, I didn't even know the guy. But, he, you know, he would, like, be on another team. And I'm like, oh, jeez. I mean, so the guy didn't even know my name was Chris. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Uh, all right, so the media career starts. Here's the, you know, it's funny because everybody has a story how they break into media. You break into media because – uh, Keith Primo says, I don't want to do this anymore. Why don't you show up tonight? I mean, I can't, seriously? That's how you get on the air at, at, at NBC, or Comcast Sportsnet as a yes. hockey analyst? <laughs> so, so I, you know, again, I, my 2006, of course, was just awful, right? So I'd gone to rehab uh, my summer. My sister just died. Here I was. My career was over. and lost all my friends in the locker room. And I'm like, you know what? I, I didn't know what to do. I was just trying to get one foot in front of the other, just trying to live life. And uh, and Primo started to see it. I said, oh, you know, NBC has announced that Keith Primo will be doing pre and post game uh, for the Flyers this upcoming year. And I'm like, oh, gee, I would have been cool to do that. Like, I wish I had an opportunity to do that. And anyway, it was Primo. He was a captain. He retired, too. He was a big name. 
So he went does like two games, and then uh, he calls me like on a Wednesday or Thursday afternoon. He goes, "Hey, what are you doing tonight?" I'm like, uh, "Not nothing." Uh, the Flyers game. He goes, well, "Why don't you go in there and do my shift?" I'm like, "What do you mean, go do your shift?" He goes, "I'm I'm done." He goes, "I'm like I'm I, I don't want to do this." So I showed up at Comcast. I'm like, "Am I supposed to be doing this?" And, and the girl that worked there, Courtney Holt, uh, is like, "Okay, I remember Courtney." Yeah. yeah, she's like, "Where's Keith?" I'm like, I, I don't. He told me to come to work. So I show up, and they're like, "Oh, we'll put you on." And I guess they called the Flyers. The Flyers approved it. And I think I was getting like 200 bucks a game. You know, like, and I was happy as a clam. But I go in there, and that's how I started. Primo never showed up again. I just started picking up his shifts. Um, and then the next year, I did one year of that. And the next year, the Flyers really liked me enough that I ended up going on the radio. Did that for many, many years uh, with Tim Saunders. We had a great, great chemistry together. It was kind of crazy. But it was exactly what the doctor ordered for me at that stage in my life. And that's for me having gratitude for the Flyers, uh, you know, to allow me to, to change like that and, and to get into it. I mean, I'm sure there's crazier stories, people, Mike, of people breaking into the media. But that one there, I just wanted to be around hockey. And there was Primo's like, I'm not doing this shit anymore. Do you want to do it? And I'm like, sure. I'll go do it. That's, that's an amazing story. And, and of course, you know, uh, listen, uh, media can be uh, an effed up profession. And uh, you, you can't explain some of the things that go on. Uh, and I know that personally. But in any event, you, you go on the ice, you do it on the ice, all of a sudden they shut it down. Now, what happened there? And, and, and are you, uh, you know, uh, what was your reaction at the time? To, to what again, Mike? I'm sorry, I lost it. To what? They 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 they, they decided to, to move on from you. You you were doing that uh, on the ice thing, and they decided to move on. Uh, you know, the, explain like what your feelings were at that time. That uh, that media that you you got into that media web also, where there seems to be no rhyme or reason or explanation yeah. for decisions they make. Well, I mean, and that's NBC Sports Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. The people that run that company. I mean, I'm not sure they. It, it's they don't have the best of time i think getting things together i was doing it i was i showed up to work every day um you know and then what happened was is i yeah i did it i, I did that and i went back to bracket the pre and post game and i got a call in 2020 near the end that they weren't going to have me back and the flyers had moved on from me since few there are few developments probably uh, coming down the pike that I, I can't really say right now uh but um you know what i did a great job at that and if they were too dumb to not recognize it so be it. Um, I, you know, I think the one thing is with the fans is that, you know, they're like, hey, we, we loved you because you didn't annoy us. And I think that was mm-hmm. what I tried yeah. to do. You know, everybody, there's always a new flavor. There's always a shiny new toy. Um, I don't agree with their decision at NBC. Uh, you know, they couldn't give Al Morgan. He couldn't get one shift. And then all of a sudden he's back. I'm gone. It's just it's just a weird dichotomy of how everything worked. But um, uh, that's the media. I Believe me, I knew long ago that I probably wasn't getting into a business with a lot of loyal people. Um, and NBC yeah. Sports uh, Philadelphia is the epitome of non-loyal. So believe it. That. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, you know, I can save some things about my career, too. But uh, in, in any event, let's talk about your family life, because your daughters uh, are obviously great athletes. Update us on uh, where they are right now, where where your children are, are playing and, and their their futures and all that stuff, because you you, you live in an area of Jersey that, that is a really good uh, 
breeding ground for 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 athletes with good programs out there. And I assume that you're fortunate to, to be have raised your children out there. But to, give us an update on your daughters. My daughters are, you know, I have uh, I have three daughters and one son. Uh, my 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 oldest one, Isabella, is now t- just turned 24. She was kind of the matriarch of the basketball family. They outplayed a Cherokee High School here in New Jersey. Um, she went to Loyola University, Maryland, which is a mid-major Division One, um, and not by any kind of uh, uh, there was no plan to it. But her two sisters followed her there. So Ava, my middle daughter, has played with her older sister and has played with her younger sister, both of which were Patriot League rookies of the year. Um, and Alexa, my my twenty-year-old, is just is is a great player. So they're doing well. The two of them still play together at Loyola. That's Ava and Alexa. One's a, uh, a graduate student. The other's a sophomore. Isabella, which is actually the funniest story, Mike. This is going to is what talk about f- true Philadelphia story. This is um, when I got sober. I've had Eagles tickets since 2004. I'm a season ticket holder. I've loved going down to football games. And one of the great bonding moments that I've had in my life was taking Isabella, my oldest, to football games. And and, and uh, our producer, Darren, Darren Degatano, his his cousin sat in my row. They're family friends of mine. So when Isabella was like 10 years old, I'd bring her down to games, and she watched all the Eagles players pass through time, and we love the Philadelphia Eagles. Isabella now uh, lives in Indianapolis. This is a great story. Her boyfriend is a starting lineman for the Indianapolis Colts. His name is Will Fries, right? But what mm-hmm. are the odds that last year Carson Wentz is a starting quarterback and maybe a rumor that Nick Foles might be back in play again at some point in Indianapolis this week or next week. So I talk about, I'm like, what are the odds that the Super Bowl winning quarterback of Indianapolis is now another player on the Indianapolis Colts? You're a wife or, you know, girlfriend of one of the players. I said, how, how wild is that, that that has gone in that direction? And Frank Reich, who was the head coach as well, that a lot of people said delivered the Super Bowl. So I always joke about the way things and nuances go in life, but but here she is, you know, and and, and there you are with you know Nick Foles and in the and in, in, uh, um, as the quarterback of the Colts, even though it's Matt Ryan, another Philadelphia guy at the same time. <laughs> well, what a what a, an unbelievable story! And then I have a my, my son who's a 16 year old, just turned 16. He's not a hockey player. He's like six five, two forty five. He's a football player and. Um, so there, but but really, sports and uh, and youth athletics has been a huge part of my family. For my kids, um, they're the reason why I made the changes in life. I'm not perfect, Mike, to this day. You know, I still have many flaws, many things that I like deal with on an everyday basis. But you know, for me, my greatest pride, you know, outside of having the ability to say I played in the NHL for a long time, it's uh, I hopefully I changed the trajectory of my kids' lives, which ultimately is the most important. And that's what I tell people. You know, I see the pain talking addicts sometimes or alcoholics when they talk about their own family. And one thing I tell them in hope is that you can have that all back. You can get all of that back again. And all you have to do is stop stop using, stop drinking, change who you are. And, and ultimately, when you do change and you stop drinking, you'll change anyway. You're just going to become the person you're supposed to be. But to me, I, I relish the fact that they were the ones that were the recipients of it. And uh, and that was a conscious decision on my part to change who I was in order to change the lives of others. Yeah. 
This has really been delightful to talk to you. And the, the book is called Chris Terry and Road to Redemption. I suggest everybody reading it. If you're a hockey fan, you're going to get enough hockey out of it to really have fun reading it. And, of course, there's really a, a great message in there with the, Chris, the way he, uh, he reformed his life. So, listen, man, continue success. You, you look great, by the way. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, buddy. And I know people can't say, say we're, we're, we're not on video, but you, you look fantastic. So, uh, keep it up. And uh, it's got to be a kick to have those daughters playing in Division One sport, man. So, yeah. Uh, Take care of yourself. And, and, and quickly, uh, on this flyer situation here as an ex-flyer, uh, I, I, am, uh, I am aghast that a proud organization like this had, could have fallen to this kind of level. I don't understand how it happened, but when you look at it, uh, what are your thoughts? You know what, Mike, and I've said this, and I, and I will always say it, the Philadelphia Flyers are one of the great loves of my life. Like, I love that that organization, what it stood for, what Mr. Snyder built, the fans, the way that they, they interact with the players. It's different. It's a different type of sport, different type of fans than perhaps other sports. But, um, you know, it's, it, it hurts to see them down the way they are. I will say this. The business side and the way that they've done things with the building has been so much better. And I really think that they're getting back to a lot of what the past was that Mr. Snyder had built here. But that doesn't matter until the team itself gets himself in a position again that they're better, that they bring a prominence to this sports town in terms of a good team. The coach is great, but this is this is certainly uh, – there's low times right now in Philadelphia for Flyers, Mike, and it's going to take some time to get back up over the hump. And uh, I ask people to remain patient. I've had to be. I've voiced my opinion as much as anybody. Um, but I, I really do think that um, – this is a time right now to remain patient and hopefully they can get past this soon because it's not good. It's not good for Philadelphia. This is a very proud, uh, beloved franchise, both nationally, internationally. And, um, the, and the fans have been very, very disappointed in what the product's been, especially the last two or three years. Yeah, my, my fear is they're so far in the dumps, it's going to take a long time. To get this thing straightened out, like maybe years. Yeah, but we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Chris, uh, listen. uh, Thanks again, man. This was great. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much, guys. Have a very happy holidays, and thank you so much for having me on as well. Appreciate it. It's the Mike Musinelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, thanks to Chris Terry, and appreciate Chris coming on. That was uh, really revealing, and, and uh, I, I enjoyed it very much talking to Chris Terry. And so, I hope you guys enjoyed it. All right, it's time for Mike Unleashed. This is just a quick hitter on Mike Unleashed today. Um, here, here's what is disturbing me a little bit—not disturbing me, but it's awkward. This is the trend of now the pressure of tipping at the counter. You get like a little takeout of something. They turn the thing around. You put your thing in there, and there's a t- tip thing, 20% or no tip. And you're pressured because you don't want to tip. You've never had the tip in the past. You're pressured now to tip. Like who's going to – and there are people watching you now. So you hit the no tip button. You feel like a cheese ball. Now, all of a sudden, it, 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 this is flipped. Now, this is how they worm the tips out of you in a situation where you never used to be able to tip or have to tip. Now it's 20%, 15%, 25%, no tip. And, and I don't know. I'm, I look around. If I don't want to tip, I look around and hit the no tip. Is that appropriate? What's the appropriate thing, Darren? Oh, man. You know, I've come across this several times. And usually, <laughs> this is going to sound terrible. If they're a younger person, I usually get, I throw a couple bucks on there. Um, if it's, I can clearly tell it's like the owner or, you know, manager work, I usually don't. But it usually depends on 
who's behind the counter for me and uh, if they look like they need it or not. <laughs> but, hey, listen, I don't know. You get Somebody grabs a donut out of a counter and puts it in a bag and brings it to you, a 20% tip. I mean, I don't know. I Listen, I'm comfortable with the rounded up. I go to a grocery store all the time, round up the change. Like if it's uh, uh, you know, your bill is uh, 73.14, you want to round it off to 74, I'll go there. But this pressure now to tip for situations that you never tipped before, I think it's flummoxing a lot of people. So if you have any uh, opinion on that, I'd love to hear your opinion at my email, which is mike at mikemiss.com. Let me know how you feel about that. It's, a, it's now a modern development. This, uh, you know, because nobody pays for cash anymore and they flip the screen up and it's got the tipping options there right for you. And it's pressure. All right. It's time now for three questions from Mikey Miss. We're going to go to the fans question. I've asked people to submit questions for me. And uh, we've got a, p- a couple of people on email that, that submitted questions to me. Uh, let's first, first start with Cindy Gallagher. Cindy asked, do I miss my radio gig? Well, let me just tell you something. I'm having a blast doing this podcast. And uh, I've told people who asked me this question, uh, I miss the radio gig in, in, the, in the context of the, the everyday interaction with people. Um, and I got to tell you, it's a lot more difficult doing the podcast than the radio gig. If you go to the radio, you have set ideas. You carry that idea for, for an hour because you're getting feedback from, from callers. And, uh, and I like that part of it, I, especially when this is going on. The Eagles are going to the Super Bowl. The Phillies were in the World Series. This is live action commentary. So that's what I miss about the radio gig. Do I, do I miss horse shit management that stands over you and harangues you for nonsense? No, I don't. Do I miss general managers who are incompetent and are going to turn the radio station into a piece of crap? No, I don't miss that at all. But I miss the daily interaction, Darren, of the callers. So there you go. Yeah, look, the, the good news, the good thing about the, doing the podcast, we can do whatever we want. We were hired, you know, mm-hmm. they basically, the good people at Bet River said, uh, you're here to do whatever you want. That's why you're in the position. So mm-hmm. uh, that freedom is nice. Um, and, you know, we can do more long-form conversations like we had with Chris Terrian today, which is just fantastic. Mm-hmm. Do I miss being at a station that basically I built brick by brick? No, I'm having fun doing what I'm doing. Okay, so let's go with another question here from um, uh, an emailer. And uh, this question is from Ryan Calhoun. What was the greatest concert that I ever attended? Whoo. Now, I got to be honest with you, I've seen probably about 100 concerts. Uh, Darren being a Bruce Springsteen fan, that's right up there. I saw Bruce at, at, in several venues, but I saw him uh, live at Giant Stadium way back in the day. Giant Stadium. And that, that was a great concert. Uh, but I'm going to go back in time uh, because, uh, you know, f- first of all, I way back in my younger days, you go to concerts at the Spectrum. And a lot of them were art rock concerts. So uh, I remember seeing uh, Kansas uh, and Robin Trower at the Spectrum. Robin Trower put his guitar out on the stage and it played itself. And I don't know if I was tripping or but the guitar was playing itself. Like those concerts, that you, they stick in your brain. But one of the first concerts that I ever went to was Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And uh, back then, they were passing around a lot of stuff. Somebody passed me this brown wax tube that was lit. I didn't even know what it was. Maybe in a hash oil concentrator, whatever it was, I I took a hit of that, and um, my ears started to play in stereo, and uh, 
and I'm I'm looking at the stage towards the end of Everest League and Palmer concert. Keith Emerson was a maniac on the keyboards. He opens his Moog, Moog synthesizer, which was this big machine, and it swerves all the way across the spectrum, sending sound waves through the spectrum, like in, in a semicircle, and and it blew up. And all of a sudden, the, the thing blew up. He blew up his freaking Moog synthesizer right in front of me, and my eyes are like, why? Because I got this. This thing that I hit, and I'm having something in Palmer, it was, it was the trippiest thing uh, I'd ever seen. Uh, I don't know if that was the best, but it was the most memorable. Uh, I've seen Bruce. I've seen you, too. Arcade Fire was a great concert. Nine Inch Nails. I was on stage with Pearl Jam. Um, Tori Amos, one of the most underrated concerts. She's brilliant. She's a brilliant pianist. I've seen Hall & Oates about 10 times. I just recently saw LCD Sound System at the Franklin Music Hall, which was fantastic. I saw Garbage, Incubus, Soundgarden, The Foo Fighters, National, uh, 21 Pilots, uh, uh, Jared Leto's band, 30 Seconds to Mars was a great concert, Paramore, uh, uh, Stained, uh, um, Three Doors Down, uh, 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 Three, three Days Grace, uh, Churches, um, uh, Billy Idol. I mean, I, I swear to God, about 100 concerts. But uh, thank you for asking the question. And then, so Goo Goo Dolls and Garbage with me, by the way. I remember, oh, really? Electrified. I garbage? Yeah, Third Eye Blind, which I know we the saw there. Yeah, so a lot of concerts. I like the concerts right now in the smaller halls. So, but uh, RK Fire was great at uh, uh, Wells Fargo Center recently. All right. Uh, I once saw, listen to this. I once saw Oasis. Okay, and I learned to play 150,000 seats. Oh, man. I would have loved to I see that. I saw Oasis at a private outdoor show on Penn's Landing with just 5,000 people. I was 20 feet away. It was the most amazing night wow. I'll ever. And the other great uh, odd show that I saw, U2 in Times Square with Springsteen. Bono couldn't make it. Springsteen fills in. It's like New Year's Eve Eve up in New York City, a private <laughs> show. Uh, we were invited up there by U2's finance finance director, me and your boy Johnny mm -hmm. Clark and a couple of friends. Yeah. And we were like yeah. on the stage. Yeah, with them. It, it was wild. That's that's a that's a that's great feedback on that. Except the question was uh, the Mike, what what concerts have you seen that, that, <laughs> I, that I, are I, most memorable? <laughs> but, but anyway, right, yeah, let's uh, let's go to the to the third question uh, today. And uh, the third question is, uh, let's see, where is it? Um, I don't know where the third. Oh, uh, no, I lost the third question. You got a question for me? <laughs> Uh, I, I, actually, I'll give you a question for you. I got, we'll, only, we'll only do two today. I got a good question for we'll you. Only do two. So the NBA is like they're naming all their trophies after, you know. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, hold that, hold that question because I okay. found the question. I'll hold that question for the, qu the question was what happened to Dan Orlovsky? We uh, let, let's just say, say stay. we are still in the hunt for Dan Orlovsky. We we couldn't hook up when we advertised it and he was coming to come on the show. We we had a little bit of a mix up. We couldn't get him on, but we are still. He is our white whale now. We are still pursuing. Yeah, he's, and he's actually targeted for Thursday. Hopefully, we'll, we'll know more this afternoon. All right, well, yeah, so we're still uh, pursuing. Um, um, uh, Oh, the, the other question was this. I missed it. I just wanted to say that about the uh, update on Orlowski. This other question is from Kristen Gratz. Who was the best celebrity call-in that I ever had? Now, we used to do this on the radio. We had a celebrity call-in contest where the, the listeners had to get the best um, um, celebrity to call, and you would win a prize. I think we had giveaway Eagle season tickets one year. So, uh, yeah, that was the dumbest radio promotion I've ever heard in my life. But go ahead. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know who the the, the best uh, celebrity call-in was. I could just tell you who we've had. 
we had Diddy. Diddy won the comp. Diddy called in out of the blue. We verified it. It was amazing. We had the Biebs. Justin Bieber called in on the celebrity contest. Uh, we had uh, Mike Tyson and Ann Hathaway, Bubba Watson, Alicia Keys, and Donald Trump before he was president called in on the show and lost that year. He lost, I think he lost to Diddy. We took Diddy over Trump for the celebrity call contest. So there you go. He, he was his name was Diddy at the time. And he, he has had six names, but he was going by Diddy. Yeah, I think I, I think I think it was Diddy, and so we were we thought we were getting uh, okie dug. But uh, he goes, "I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tweet out from my account right now that I'm talking to you on your show." And he did. So it was Diddy that he won the contest. So so there you go. That was not a bad get. Uh, okay, I think that that uh, closes it down for today. Uh, don't forget to download that Bet Rivers app. It's a great app. Get it on your phone. You can make your bets in live time. You can bet right now if, if you like the Eagles getting five points. A lot of people will like that. Again, you can email me at mike at mikemiss.com. Uh, a great a holiday gift would be my book. I just did a couple book signings. I'm really happy with the turnout. Great to meet people. The, my book is a children's book. It's called The Adventures of Shima the Sheba. You can go right to my website, mikemiss.com, and order it. Or you can get it on Amazon at barnesandnoble.com, wherever you get your books. It's called The Adventures of Shima. The Shima comes in a hard cover and a soft cover. It's for kids that just have learned to read or parents that can read to their children. Uh, I'm proud of it. Uh, and so uh, hopefully people enjoy it. Again, 20% of proceeds are going to, to animal shelters. In fact, I, I'm, I'm just donating today. Uh, to one of the shelters because I've had just, a, you know, in the brief uh, proceeds that I've had on the book. Also, I'm part of a winery now, NataliVineyards.com. You get it shipped to you for the holidays. We're making some great wine out there. You can go to my website to find a description of all the wines, or you go right to the winery website, NataliVineyards.com. That's N-A-T-A-L-I Vineyards.com. Uh, and order wine, get it shipped to you. It's all reasonably priced. And it's pretty good wine. Uh, all right. Anything else? I think we're good. Twitter, follow me, MikeMiss25. And, uh, okay, so uh, we'll do another one third. We'll do a special Christmas show on Thursday. And I'm going to tell you, I got a, a request for this. I used to do it on uh, at, the, at holiday time on my radio show all the time. I will be doing the rendition, the intro, uh, along with Bruce Springsteen. The famous intro, Santa Claus is coming to town. Oh, it's all cold along the boardwalk. I'll be doing it as I play the song from my phone into the microphone. And we'll talk about Christmas songs. We'll talk about Christmas movies and an analysis of The Godfather. Because it's technically a Christmas movie. Happens during Christmas. Ten things that I think are askew. In The Godfather, the greatest movie of all time. Everybody have a great rest of the week. We will see you on Thursday for our special Christmas Eve show. It is the Mike Missinelli Podcast. Subscribe, and it'll come right to you. Very easy to get. We thank everybody that's been listening. This is Mike Miss. I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Mike Missinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.